Let's turn in our Bibles to the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Let's pay careful attention now to God's holy word, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. May God bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking God's help and blessing upon His Word this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 1. As we focus our attention on verse 24. Romans 1, verse 24. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts 
to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. We continue our consideration of Romans chapter 1, recognizing once again that we're dealing here with Paul's description of human sin as it manifested itself among the Gentile nations. Those nations that descended from Noah, and so there's something of a history in terms of God's covenant and of God's revelation. These nations descended from Noah, and famously, not too long after the flood, we find them rebelling against God at the Tower of Babel. And God scatters them, and eventually God calls Abraham, and Paul in chapter 2 is eventually going to deal with the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their privileged position as the people of God, the recipients of special revelation, of Scripture, of the ministry of the prophets of old. But here he's dealing with these Gentile nations that had lost that privilege. From Babel on, they didn't have the revelation of God in Scripture or they didn't have the ministry of regular prophets and preachers. Instead, all they had was the light of nature. God's natural or general revelation through creation and through conscience, which revealed His character in certain respects, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and deity. The pagans understood these things. They had a conscience. They understood something of the difference between right and wrong. And yet we're told that things gradually deteriorated. There was this cultural decline on a corporate level that took place. And again, the purpose of this outline, this narrative that Paul's giving to us, is to demonstrate why all the Gentile nations, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well, pretty much everybody, no matter what tribe or tongue or nation we hail from, we need the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness because we are sinful. We're sinful as individuals. And because of that, our sin leeches into the other institutions that God has established corporately in our families, in our communities, in our religion, in our civil government. Sin is everywhere. And we see this cultural decline described for us. We said earlier in the series that there are five stages here of organic cultural decline. The first stage we saw was ingratitude. These people had the truth of God revealed through creation and conscience. They had something of God's attributes and of right and wrong in their conscience. They had these things, but they didn't respond to them appropriately. They didn't act upon these things. And so what happened was they didn't glorify God as God. They knew something about God. There's a Creator. He made the heavens and the earth. But they didn't give place to God and to what they were hearing from the voice of conscience. They didn't act upon it. They ignored it. They suppressed it in unrighteousness. They turned a blind eye to it in willful ignorance. 
and they didn't show gratitude to this God who had given them every single blessing that they enjoyed in this life. And so they didn't worship Him and they didn't give thanks. Stage one, ingratitude. Now, as you can see from the sermon title, we're moving through this process eventually to this idea of immorality, which is stage three. And so I want to say something about that in a moment. But stage one, ingratitude. Stage two, we saw that this failure to act upon God's revelation led, left a vacuum to be filled. If we're not going to honor God as God, well then, something has to take God's place. Enter stage two, idolatry. First, intellectual idolatry. People thinking that they're wiser than God. They fancied themselves to be wise and they became fools. They thought they were wiser than God's revelation. And so human ideas took the place and filled the vacuum left by God's revelation. We saw as well that there's religious idolatry. That when man takes it upon himself to decide what's true and false in terms of the intellect, to decide what's right and wrong in terms of the conscience, that he eventually decides who God is and what God is like and how God ought to be worshipped. And so, not only was there intellectual idolatry, but there was religious idolatry. God was replaced with these man-made substitutes, whether it's man-made images, whether it's humanly contrived conceptions of God, false gods, or false methods of worshiping the true God, man-made religion and man-made ideas and philosophy filled the void. And this leads to stage three, which we take up this morning, immorality. As you can see, following the description of idolatry and image worship in verse 23, therefore, verse 24, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Sexual sin. Sex outside of marriage, sexual lust, sexual thoughts, sexual behavior, sexual words, thoughts, actions, all of these things involving sexual intimacy, sexual pleasure outside of the God-given blessing of the marriage covenant. Ingratitude, idolatry, and immorality. Now it's important for us to understand the progression here. In stage one of ingratitude, where people understood but just didn't act upon God's revelation, in stage one, there was a conscientious opposition to sexual immorality. Now, I've said before in this sermon series that we can apply these stages of decline to our own culture and to our own nation. We can look at our civilization here in America from the early days of the Mayflower Compact to the approval or uh, adoption of the United States Constitution in 1789 and so on and so forth. We can look at our own response to special revelation and see that there's a parallel here. The way in which cultural decline took place in opposition to God's general revelation is mirrored 
by the way in which this cultural decline takes place in opposition to God's special revelation in Scripture. And so just looking, thinking a little bit more of a familiar in familiar territory here, stage one of ingratitude when our forefathers first came to this land and established a Christian society and Christian colonies and so on, and yet they didn't go far enough. They didn't act on it. They, they glorified God. They gave Him a place, but they didn't glorify Him as God. They didn't go the whole way. They didn't drive out the Canaanites, as it were, in terms of really driving out sin and wickedness and idolatry. They, they didn't go the whole way. They were, many of them, most of them, Christian people, but they didn't quite take it as far as they should, which is a discussion for another day. But the point is, during that stage, they opposed immorality. They opposed sexual immorality and held marriage in high regard. And sexual lust was largely, not entirely, but largely restrained during stage one. Now you move to stage two with the Enlightenment, with Thomas Jefferson uh, trying to cross out most of the New Testament and mine out jewels out of the dunghill of the New Testament. This arrogant, foolish, intellectual idolatry. When you get to stage two, you see that they still oppose sexual immorality. We saw that Thomas Jefferson wanted to establish Christian ethics. He wanted to establish uh, the New Testament ethical teachings in society. And so there was at least, technically speaking, at least on, in terms of the public forum, there was an opposition to sexual immorality. Now, it, it, was, it was struggling a bit. You see the... Uh, the infamous affair that took place between Alexander Hamilton and the wife of, of another one of the uh, diplomats at that time. Uh, you see even Thomas Jefferson potentially having a sexual relationship with uh, some, of the, some of his slaves. So, so it was waning. But to a large extent, they still opposed sexual immorality. They thought they were establishing chastity and purity through their human innovations and to the extent that it was restrained, they took credit for it. They didn't realize that the restraint of sexual lust in their day was on the borrowed capital of God's revealed Word. God's revelation is what was restraining sexual sin. Now we move to stage three. And we could debate in our own society at what point stage three took effect. You could say the sexual revolution of the 20th century, somewhere thereabouts perhaps. But the point is, when you move into stage three, it becomes apparent that the man-made restraints and the man-made ethical and religious innovations have proved ineffective. They haven't worked. Professing themselves to be wise, they became foolish. And so now at an organic level, not even dealing with the, the judgment of God yet at this point, at an organic level, those human innovations dilute the restraining effect of the revelation of God. And so, whereas Thomas Jefferson and his phony Bible was set out and set forth to restrain sin and injustice, it fails. And eventually over time in a society, it becomes clear that sexual sin, sexual lust, 
is not being restrained and so lust is gradually emancipated and set free because people say, well, if you can't beat them, join them as it were. If you can't stop sexual lust, if it's just boiling over, what are you going to do? You can try to legislate against it, but eventually sexual lust is going to be accepted because what else are you going to do? Go back to the Bible to restrain it? And they would laugh in your face at that idea. And whether they on the inside are laughing or not, the point is they would never go back to the Bible. They'd rather allow sexual lust to reign free. And so that's what they do. And you enter stage three, immorality. And, and so far, we're not going to deal with uh, stages four and five. Stage four, perversion. Stage five, chaos. But we're going to focus on stage three, immorality, which in some sense serves to discredit stage two. We can't miss this. Before we move on, we can't miss this. Stage three discredits stage two. So if the people who came up with the human innovations were saying this is going to make society more ethical, this is going to strengthen institutions like the family and marriage, if that's what they said was going to happen, and instead all hell breaks loose in terms of sexual sin, it discredits the human innovations. And it it tells us that the solution here is to go back to the beginning. The solution is to reject the humanistic man-made religion and humanistic ethics that have taken the place of the biblical worldview. And that's true in our society. That's true in these Gentile nations in a more general sense with natural revelation. Well, so much for the organic cultural decline. Secondly, we see here the judicial wrath of God. So far, what I've described actually makes sense. Even if God were, in a way, stepping back and not taking any decisive action to move this process along, this is what would happen. Organic cultural decline. Idolatry is going to lead to sexual immorality. That's just the way it's going to be. That's an organic process. But we're told it's not merely an organic, gradual process according to the laws by which the world is governed and the laws of human nature. This is the judicial wrath of God. Remember verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So God is breaking in. Now He's sovereign over everything anyway. But this is communicating to us that God is breaking in. God is rending the heavens. He's coming down. And He's not simply going to let this process or procedure of human nature and so on take place. God Himself is angry. And God Himself has a right to be angry. This is His judgment. This is His judicial wrath. And we're told in verse 24, Therefore, so on account of the ingratitude that led to the idolatry, therefore, on that basis, God also gave them up to uncleanness. He gave them up. He gave them over to uncleanness. In other words, God imposed sanctions. We see that today. When there's a conflict in the world, one nation or group of nations will impose sanctions 
on another nation. They'll refuse to do business with them. Uh, the, you know, the United States will oftentimes cut off the SWIFT payment system so that that nation can't use dollars, can't transact business in the international community using dollars, so on and so forth. Sanctions are imposed. And what we're told here is that God in His just wrath has imposed sanctions upon the ungrateful, idolatrous culture in view. In other words, God is saying, if you will not be My servants, if you're going to serve and worship the creature, the created things, the man-made idols, the pleasures and treasures of this life, loving the gifts rather than the giver, if you're going to serve created things, if you're not going to be My servants, then you will be the slaves of your own lust. You want to be God? Humanistic idolatry? Well then, here you go. You're going to be a slave of yourself. You won't be a servant of God. You'll be a slave of yourself, of your sin, and of your own lust. And we see this providential principle articulated throughout the Scriptures that if you won't serve God, then He'll make you a slave. Deuteronomy chapter 28 Verse 47, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. You were ungrateful and you were idolatrous. You wouldn't serve the Lord. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in need of everything. There are going to be shortages. There are going to be shortages. The supply chain breaks. You're not going to have the things you had before. God is going to step in and you will become a slave and you will be without the things that you once had because you didn't give thanks and serve Him. You'll be in need of everything and He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until He has destroyed you. And I'm saying that yoke of iron in Romans 1 is not the yoke of a political oppressor. It is the yoke of your own sinful lust. It is a yoke of iron. In fact, that sinful lust is more of a tyrant, more of an insurmountable slave master and tyrant than, than any dictator in human history. God gives them up to the lusts of their heart or in the lusts of their heart. We sang of it in Psalm 81, God said, open wide your mouth and I'll fill it. I'm your God. I've liberated you from captivity and slavery in Egypt. And I will give you spiritual liberty and blessedness in the promised land. All you have to do is believe and receive. And it's yours. Verse 11, but my people would not heed my voice and Israel would have none of me. They wouldn't respond to God's revelation. And they didn't want God. They exchanged God for these other things, just like in Romans 1. They would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. So, so I want you to think about this. God's judgment upon humanism is in a way to give humanism what it's always wanted. You want to be in control. You want to be able to do whatever you want to do. And you call that freedom. 
My friends, anybody who has an ounce of common sense knows that freedom is not doing whatever you want to do. Because there are many things that you desire and want to do that are bad for you, bad for other people, and it would not end well if you were unrestrained and able to do everything, every, follow every inclination of your heart one way or the other. That is actually what we call slavery. And if you go to any rehab clinic, you'll find out pretty quickly that there are many people, and I would say even in, in this building right now, we all know there, that uh, there are things that we want to stop doing and we can't things we want to rein in, desires in our lives that we're fighting against tooth and nail. Best case scenario, we've had some victory. But if we don't have the ability to triumph over our own lusts, we find ourselves in utter bondage and slavery. So freedom is not doing what your heart desires, doing what you want to do, you being on the throne. Freedom is being liberated by God to do what you know is right and good over against what you may desire to do. Because what you know is right is a lot different from what you may desire to do at any given point. So God is saying to this ungrateful, idolatrous humanism, here you go. I'm going to give you up to do what you've always wanted, to have what you've always wanted. And my friends, it's bondage. And specifically, sexual sin. It's not the only form of bondage, but it certainly is one of the worst forms. Hosea mentions two examples of this type of sinful bondage. Hosea 4, verse 11 Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. Hosea 4.11 Harlotry, that's sexual sin. Harlotry, wine, and new wine, that's drunkenness. Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. My friends, when lust is set free, everyone is enslaved apart from the grace of God. And whether it's sexual sin or substance abuse, these things are tyrants. They're wonderful within the context that God has appointed them, but they're bad masters. And this is the judgment, the judicial wrath of God. He gives them up to these lusts. And my friends, the lust after sexual gratification outside of marriage is a destructive lust. It is something that has far more of an impact on our society and the wreckage that we see around us than you might think. It destroys marriages. When sexual lust is approved and held in high regard and advertised everywhere as a good thing, as, as a manly thing, as, as an attractive thing for women to pursue, it, when it becomes that, it destroys marriage. It drives a wedge between husband and wife and it leads to widespread divorce as we see in our own day because everybody's trying to pursue the satisfaction of their desires on any given day. There's no reigning in. There's no self-control. There's no commitment. There's no covenantal loyalty. It's just 
what can I get out of marriage? And then when that's over, I move on to the next thing. Sexual loss, sexual immorality destroys marriage and therefore it destroys parenting, which is the basic building block of society. Children being raised by a father and a mother who love them, even in a pagan society, even among unbelievers. There's a value to two committed faithful parents, faithful spouses in a marriage raising their children. God has designed children to be raised in that way. He hasn't designed them to be raised in so many of the alternative scenarios that we see today. And so that strikes a blow to the foundation of society. And again, you could just you could come to the conclusion that what I'm saying is true simply by going to the local jail or the prison system or so on and so forth. You can see the wreckage in our society and you can trace it back to the statistics of how few children are raised in anything close to a stable two-parent home. Well, sexual immorality doesn't stop there. It destroys work ethic. It promotes an ideal of a a citizen, someone who gets what they want rather than someone who does what they need to do. It it destroys any sense of self-discipline and work ethic. It weakens the economy. It weakens the military. It degrades women. It leads to human trafficking and all kinds of vile sex crimes and sex abuse. It leads to abortion because people are having sex in so many different contexts And children are being conceived out of wedlock and in situations that are deemed inconvenient. And so, it's really sexual immorality that drives the bus. It's really the undercurrent of abortion itself where children are murdered. Sexual immorality leads to sexual dysfunction. It leads to population problems in a nation. It leads to addiction, abuse, perversion, It undermines everything a society is attempting to do and attempting to be. And so this is a curse of God upon a nation. You get what you want, it's going to destroy you. The judicial wrath of God. Now, the way in which God does this, thirdly, is He removes the restraints. The restraints are removed. It is not that God is making people to be sexually immoral. It's not as though God is taking people that are sexually pure and He's coming down from heaven as it were and making them ungodly and making them to be immoral and full of sexual lust. Notice, He gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts. He gave them up to uncleanness, which is a reference to sexual immorality, in the lusts of their hearts. So that's telling us something that the lusts were already there. We said they were restrained in previous stages of cultural decline, restrained by the revelation of God, and restrained in a number of ways. But the lust was there. God didn't put the lust in their heart. It's not God's lust. They're restrained in the lusts of their hearts. Because they're totally depraved sinners conceived and born in sin. What God is doing is removing the restraints that were holding back the lusts that were in the hearts of these people. Now notice the difference between verse 24 and verse 26. 
Stage three immorality, God gives them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts. So the, the sexual lust was pre-existing. God's just pulling, pulling back the restraints. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions. See, when it moves from heterosexual immorality to perversion, to homosexuality, there's different language here. God does not give them up in the lusts of their hearts. He gives them up to vile passions. And there's no reference to the lusts of their hearts. In other words, heterosexual immorality is a natural lust It's a desire that's good within marriage to have heterosexual intimacy. That's good, but then when it's it's conducted outside of those boundaries, it becomes evil by that circumstance. It's a natural lust. Just like gluttony is a natural lust. You desire food, but then that desire can get out of control outside the boundaries. It's a natural lust. But homosexuality is an unnatural lust. There are no boundaries in which two men ought to be having sexual intimacy. And really, we we shouldn't even call it that. But there are no boundaries in which two women should have that type of relationship. It's an unnatural lust. God's not giving them over to something that's already in their hearts. God's actually pulling back the restraint of their desire for sexual pleasure to the point where now it'll go to such great lengths to get that rush and that thrill that it thinks it needs. But in any event, he's in stage three, he's giving them up to these existing sexual desires and removing the restraints thereof. Now, how does God restrain sin in the world today? Speaking more generally, how does he do that? How does God restrain sin? Now, if you want to answer this question, you can go to Genesis chapter 6 in the days before the flood, and you can see that God does it in three ways. He does it by way of His revelation. He does it by His Word, by the preaching of His Word, by His prophets, by general revelation through the created world and through the conscience. And you see in the days before the flood when Adam dies and when Enoch is taken to heaven, that's when the restraints, that, that's when the dam bursts as it were, and the flood of iniquity comes in as a precursor to the flood of judgment. His revelation. Secondly, His church. The faithful witness of His church. And you see in the days of Noah, what happens to remove the restraint of wickedness in that day? The intermarriage between the sons of God, the children of God, believers, and the daughters of men, unbelievers. When the church intermarries with the world, and abandons its holy calling, and its witness is diluted, that removes another restraint. And thirdly, the Spirit of God, who says in Genesis chapter 6, at a certain point, I will no longer strive with man. So the striving of the Spirit of God, stirring up the human conscience, is also removed. And the same is true among the pagan nations, although the church wasn't present after Babel. That was restraint was removed. But God's general revelation is suppressed and His Spirit no longer strives. And He says, I'm giving you up to your sinful lusts. Fourthly, 
This is my last point, um, I think, for today. And then we'll take this up next time with some more practical applications. But my fourth uh, point is that this is a heart problem. In the lusts of their hearts. Notice he doesn't say he gave them up to bodily desires or bodily lusts. Now you would think, if it's sexual sin that we're talking about, that this is a problem of physical, sensual appetites. And so he's giving over their bodies. He's giving over the desires and lusts of their bodies. But it doesn't say that. It says that this is a heart problem. It says that sexual sin actually fundamentally takes place in the heart. And the body is just the apparatus and the instrument by which the heart seeks to gratify its own lusts and its own desires. It's important to pay close attention to the Word of God because sometimes we have our own predispositions, our own assumptions about how things should be worded and and how things are to be understood. But here, it cuts against our expectations. This is a heart problem. Well, what does it mean when it says the heart? In the Bible... The heart is a reference to the mind and the will. In the Scriptures, when it says heart, it can sometimes speak of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So it's speaking of man's intellect. But when it says heart, it's always including man's will along with his intellect. Usually if it wants to speak strictly of man's intellect, it will say his mind. But when it uses the word heart, it speaks of his inner person, specifically his mind, his intellect by which he thinks, and his will by which he desires and by which he makes decisions. The mind and the will. He gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their minds and wills. That means it's not just a mental intellectual problem, by the way. It's also a problem of their choices. These two things go together. And we've seen these before in our passage. Verse 18 speaks of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So because they willfully reject the truth, they constrain their minds to intellectually object against it and they suppress the truth. Their, their will tyrannizes their mind. Willful ignorance. Willful unbelief. Self-deception, we might say. Verse 21, because although they knew God intellectually, they did not glorify Him as God nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. So they have the intellectual knowledge, but again, their will doesn't act on it. So what happens? Their intellectual knowledge proves to be vain and futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the light of God's revelation is kept out, and they are willfully blind, self-deceived sinners. So the mind and the will. Now, if this is a heart problem of the mind and the will, then sexual immorality requires a heart solution. It requires a solution. It requires a battle plan that involves the mind and the will. Jesus said, He who sins is a slave of sin. John 8.34 And then He says, two verses earlier, John 8.32 You will know the truth 
and the truth will set you free. So Jesus is saying, this is a heart problem. You're in bondage to this sin. Perhaps it's sexual sin, sexual immorality, pornography, whatever it is. You're in bondage to this sin. And Jesus says the first step is the mind receiving the truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. We're told as well in Romans chapter 8, after Paul has dealt with this this battle against sin in chapter 7, where the believer desires to do what's right, but finds himself doing what's wrong, and, and he's conflicted in his soul in this battle against indwelling sin, and perhaps sexual lust is the sin that you're battling. Romans 8, 5-7 tells us this, in terms of how to overcome that. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So the battle begins in your heart, and that means it begins in your mind. You have to know the truth in order to be set free, and you need to set your mind on the things of the Spirit rather than on the things of the flesh. If your mind is focused on the things of the flesh, if you're thinking in a carnal way, then you're always going to choose what is sinful. And I use this illustration, if you were going to invest some money and you went in to the guy at Edward Jones and you sat down and you didn't know anything about investing and you sit there and you've got money to invest and and you're relying upon him to give you the information that you need in order to make a wise decision. You're asking questions, you're trying to get information from him, and if he's giving you bad advice, you wouldn't know any different. You wouldn't know. You're at the mercy of the information that you're receiving. The same is true when we make decisions in our lives and even as Christians. Our will is relying upon our mind to supply it with information, true information, the most relevant information, because you can have knowledge of all kinds of things, but is your mind giving you the most relevant information? Is it misalocking on the things of the Spirit, the truth of God's Word, and saying, here, as you're making this decision, listen to the consequences if you go in this direction versus that direction. Here's what God's Word says. If your mind is not set on spiritual things informing your will, your will is going to make bad decisions again and again and again. Why? Because it's a heart problem, which means first and foremost, it is a mind problem. He goes on, verse 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So if your mind is focusing on the carnal pleasure and enjoyment of some sinful lust, and it's informing your will, hey, I know it's wrong, but... And and you're focused on that information that your mind is sending you, and your mind is not focused on the supremely relevant fact of who God is and what He commands and the consequences of sin and the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. If If you're not there, then you're going to choose that lust. That's just how your humanity is designed to function. That you're going to listen to the information that your mind is giving your will. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he says essentially the same thing. 
Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So your mind should be focused upon Christ, upon His second coming and the final judgment, upon the grace of God. You should be soberly considering the truths that should be the lens by which you perceive everything that's happening around you. Verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. So when you were ignorant, you weren't giving yourself very good investment advice. And your portfolio was in the tank. But now that you're a believer, you have the knowledge of God. You have the knowledge of Christ. You, you are a child of God. That ignorance is in the past. It's in the rear view. It's a former ignorance. Don't let the former ignorance creep its way back in. He says, but as He who called you is holy, you also should be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Are you honestly, when you fall into sexual sin, are you honestly thinking about the holiness of God? Are you honestly thinking about the second coming of Christ? Are you honestly thinking about the fact that sexual sin is a slave master whose intent is to make your life miserable, if not for eternity, definitely in this life? It's a heart problem, therefore it's a mind problem. You need, as Titus 1 verse 1 says, the truth that accords with godliness. He goes on to say, chapter 2 verse 12 of Titus, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. He says, okay, so what? You're in stage 3, stage 4, stage 5 of a declining wicked culture, the grace of God should be teaching you. That's doctrine. The grace of God ought to be providing doctrinal instruction for your mind to take in so that you would deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Don't tell me nobody can be sexually pure in this age. Because the Cretans were evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And if Paul says they can be sanctified in sexual purity, what excuse do you have? You can do it by the grace of God, but you have to be taught you need the truth. He says, chapter 3, verse 3, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures. Why were they serving various lusts and pleasures? Because they were foolish, because they were deceived, because their mind was not latching on to the truth that sanctifies, living in malice and envy and so on. So it begins in the heart and it begins in the mind. Now I want to eventually close with uh, an example of this. But before I do that, let me just tell you why I'm hitting this point so hard this morning. The reason I am is because so much of the biblical material that's out there for fighting sexual sin, fighting sexual lust, fighting sexual addiction, so much of it focuses not upon what I've just described, which seems to be the focus of the New Testament, 
but rather focuses on other things that are not in themselves bad. They can be helpful, but if, this is, if, if all you get is what you read in a lot of these books, you're going to find yourself hitting your head against the wall time and time again. Human accountability, is that important in fighting sexual lust? Absolutely. The proverb says the person who isolates himself or herself is not wise. So absolutely. Human accountability can be very helpful. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Let's say your mind is is looking at a choice that you have. You're being tempted to sexual sin. And your mind is looking at the information. On the one hand, there's the consideration that this is sinful. This sexual sin is contrary to the law of God. It's wrong. It's morally bad. Okay. And, And that's pretty much often, sadly, the extent of your consideration of it, perhaps. Secondly, you're thinking about how lousy it would feel to not satisfy yourself. Perhaps there's some glimmer of, wow, this is going to make me feel great. But if you're a believer, my guess is that you know it's not a great and wonderful thing, but you're in bondage to it and you just, you're afraid of the lousy feeling and the lousy implications and consequences of not satisfying that desire. And if you proceed with the sexual sin, what you're saying at that point is, that my desire to not be dissatisfied, my desire to avoid the lousiness is greater than, and the significance of it is greater than the concern of whether I'm obeying God. And that's a problem. Now human accountability comes in. And it says, look, if you were about to commit sexual sin and somebody walked into the room, you would stop. It would throw a bucket of cold water over your head. You would stop And so you can see the power of human accountability. But you see, that I mean, that's true. And if we need to throw everything, including the kitchen sink, at sexual sin, by all means, that's an important principle. But here's the thing. What are you really doing there if obeying God's law is down here, avoiding feeling dissatisfied is up here, and then avoiding looking bad in the eyes of somebody else is up here? So you're you're saying, well, the pride of life trumps the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. Well, congratulations. You've sinned anyway. So, what's the point? Now, human accountability can function in terms of training wheels on biblical repentance and obedience. Human accountability is one tool on the tool belt. It's something you you should definitely be utilizing, no doubt about it. But at the end of the day, if that's the, the only or the most significant consideration that I might look bad in the eyes of somebody else, and your love of reputation is greater than your love of sensual pleasure, that's not going to be very effective because guess what? Pride and sexual sin are good buddies. They, they, they flock together. So it's actually just going to reinforce your sinful nature as a whole and lead you back to sexual sin. So, so mere human accountability is not the answer. It should be utilized, but it's not the ultimate answer. Neither is mere external restraints. Locking your phone, using internet software, those things are good. In fact, I would say if you're not using those things, you're sinning. You need to use those things. But merely using external constraints and restraints is not going to solve your ultimate problem because you're going to find a way to get past the software. 
Because the ultimate problem is you want to get to that sinful satisfaction. You want that. And if all you're doing is trying to hope that the fear of confessing to a brother about your sin or the fact that you can't think of the password, that that's going to somehow sanctify you, my friends, that, those are just training wheels on biblical repentance. Why do you want that sexual sin in the first place? That needs to be addressed first and foremost. Your mind needs to be renewed in the Scriptures so that you hate that sin. So that you don't want it anymore. I don't need an accountability partner to keep me from eating dog excrement in the yard. And the fact is that making a law or, or imposing church discipline, none of these things are necessary to keep me from eating dog excrement in the yard. Why? Because my mind evaluates it as something that's not beneficial, probably harmful, but even more so, it's distasteful. It's sickening. I don't want any part of it. I'm not going to go near it. Okay? That's what sin is. That's what sexual sin is. You need to learn to hate it. I'm not saying get rid of your accountability partner. I'm not saying get rid of the lock on your phone. I'm not saying maybe you should throw your phone in the Detroit River. But the point is, you you can't keep leaving the main concern unaddressed. Why do you want it? Why do you desire it? Why are you trying to, to crack that code and get to that internet site? You say, well, dog excrement's not a good analogy. Well, let me give you another one. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, well, for, for years, I loved cheesesteaks, my favorite food. Uh, I would eat cheesesteaks uh, wherever I would visit and compare them, a, a bit of a, you know, a connoisseur of Philly cheesesteaks. But then I realized at a certain point that I'm allergic to gluten. And so, of course, you can put Philly cheesesteak on top of fries or something, but I can't eat the bun. I can't eat Philly cheesesteaks the way I used to. I can't eat gluten. I have an allergic reaction. It's, it's an unpleasant thing in my digestive system, so I'm, not, I'm just not going to go there. Now, when somebody brings Krispy Kreme donuts to our high school baseball game, or they bring cookies that have gluten in them, are those Krispy Kreme donuts or those chocolate chip cookies, are they, are they any less sweet or desirable in principle? No, or, or yes, they are. They look good. Uh, the cookie looks good. The Krispy Kreme donut looks good. So there is something about it that in one sense is attractive. But I'm not going to go near those things. Why? Because I know what it does to me. I've developed an antipathy. I've developed an adversarial relationship to gluten regardless of the fact that I know if I tasted it, it would, it would taste good for a little while and then I would have all kinds of problems. But that could, if that's a helpful analogy for you, your mind needs to get right on the fact that this is evil. This is hurtful. This is wicked. God hates it. You ought to hate it if God is living inside of you. Jesus says to pray, lead us not into temptation. So yes, limit the opportunities, limit the temptations, but He also says you should trust God to deliver you from evil so that when Potiphar's wife comes calling day after day after day and there's no way to put a password protection on her attempts to get you to go to bed with her, the fact is you're going to be able to say with Joseph because your mind is right, how can I do this wicked thing and sin against God? 
I don't want to do this. I don't desire this. This would be evil. This would betray the trust of my Master on earth and my Master in heaven. We need to get our minds right. And next time, with God's help, we'll consider five reasons from our text to flee fornication. Five reasons from our text to flee fornication. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with Your glory. We pray that You would wake us up to the sinfulness of sin and that You would point us to the Lord Jesus Christ who takes away not only its guilt, but its power. That You would strengthen our confidence in the Holy Spirit of God and that we would gird up the loins of our mind. We pray that we, like Moses of old, would see Him who is invisible and that with that knowledge in our minds, we would value even the reproach of Christ to be greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. Enable us to make good choices based upon good information, even the knowledge of the truth of Your Word by which You sanctify Your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.